Hi, I'm Marilyn Dennis, and this is Marilyn Dennis Does a Podcast. This episode, I'll be speaking with CTV News science and technology specialist, Dan Riskin. He's one of their regular guests on the Marilyn Dennis Show, as well as the former co-host of Discovery Canada's Daily Planet and Animal Planet's Monsters Inside Me. Dan lives in Toronto, Canada with his wife, Shelby, also a scientist, and their three kids, Sam and twins, Linnea and Wallace. Since we all went into lockdown back in March, we've been inundated with information about COVID-19. So today, I'm on a fact-finding mission and discussion for why it is important to easily, gradually, and carefully open up in phases to how technology is playing a part in the slowing of the spread and the socioeconomic consequences behind ideas like immunity passports. All right, let's talk to Dan Riskin. Hi, Dan. Welcome to June 2020. How are you? Good. I see you on TV all the time. You're talking to these people. You're talking to these people. I said, you got to talk to me now. Yeah, it's a busy time to be a science communicator. I don't wish this on the world at all, obviously, but uh, there are times when people want to hear what the experts have to say. And I'm not a direct expert, but I'm very good at reading scientific papers and sort of putting them in English. And so, um, you know, I used to talk about all kinds of different things, everything under the sun. But for the last few months, it's been pretty COVID centric. That and those giant killer hornets that showed up in BC. Other than that, oh. it's been mostly COVID-19. Yeah, yeah. everything else, uh, all, other than that, nothing else is new, <laughs> you know? Exactly. Father, I, I just, I know that you're a father of three. I know that uh, you've got uh, twins and you have, mm-hmm. now tell me what your kids' names are, because I don't know that. Yeah, I got Sam, who's eight, and then I've got Wallace and Linnea, who are five. And they are the poor kids, and the poor kids everywhere in the world, really. I mean, it's a sad time because they can't, they want to play with their friends and they should be playing with their friends. That's good for development. And so they're, I mean, they're playing with each other and I'm, I'm grateful that I have three kids. So, but they're ready to kill each other too. <laughs> That's part of it. Yeah. I would. So how's Shelby, your wife holding up through all of this? She's doing well. She's teaching. I mean, she's a prof at the University of Toronto. And so she's been having to move all her courses to online and do it all from the house. And the three kids, it's it, you're running, you go from a man on man defense to a zone defense as soon as you have more kids than you have grown ups. And so when I'm downstairs with all three kids and she's teaching a class, I'm like scrambling. To try to whack them trying to keep them out of the room. <laughs> what does she teach, Dan? I've never asked you that. She teaches biology. Ecology and evolutionary biology is the department, and she teaches conservation biology and stuff like that. Did you meet at lab? Is that what happened? Getting yes, I was a postdoc at Brown University. She was a grad student. I did not. I was not in a position of power over her. There was no. Uh, there was nothing inappropriate. I was in a different lab altogether, and uh, we met and hit it off. All right. So now we're all locked down for right now. Oh. This broadcast. This. What we're doing right now is June 2020. All right, so much has happened before that. There's things to look forward to. But I do want to ask you two full questions, and that is with your three little ones, what's the most asked questions they ask of dad and mom? Oh, you know what? It's not really about the, the the virus. It's more like I'm bored. Can I please? You know, you can just tell there's this this anxiety that we're doing our best as parents to make go away. But um, it's not that they're anxious about the disease, but they're anxious because they miss their friends and they, they don't like being, you know, like our street is full of kids. And there are yeah. all these kids out there playing in parallel with their parents and the kids can't play with each other. And it's just torture. And so I think that's yeah. the big sort of conversation is trying to sort of mitigate that. And I I don't know what the solution is to that. That's really where we're at right now yeah. as a family. Well, do, 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 when you said COVID-19 to them or we can't go out because we are 
Like, how did you, because as a scientist and, and you know, I, I, as you are, I wanted to know, how would you explain that to your kids without over-explaining it? We can't go out. You can't see it, but yeah. Yeah. I you know what? They're, they're pretty good. I mean, kids get the idea of germs pretty early. And of course, with our kids, we're pretty, mm-hmm. you know, we don't say germ, we say virus or we say bacteria. And we distinguish between them. We talk about antibiotics and we talk about hand sanitizers, about hand washing. But the big conversation um, I had with my kids the day I picked them up from school on that lab, what turned out to be the last day of school for them. Uh, they thought they were going right. on March break, but it turned out to be the end of the year. Um, what I said to them is, we're going to go through a weird period of time here and you're safe. You're not going to die from this, but we have to protect grandma. And so you're going to do a bunch of things that are going to be hard for you, but you are a hero and you have a role to play to keep old people safe. And that was the beginning of the conversation. And they've sort of hung on to that. And we've gone back there a couple of times just to say, I know this is hard, but remember, you're a hero right now. You're helping to keep everyone safe by taking these measures, by doing these things that you don't want to do. I love that. I love that messaging. Now, what is the most asked by adults in your world? Because I bet you you're the go-to in your family, the go-to in media. What are they asking? What are the most asked questions? Well, a lot of people want to know when this is going to end and how it's going to end and when we get to go back to normal. I think a lot of people are sort of giving up on that normal idea, especially with with what's happening in the States politically. Um, Just when we emerge from this on the other side, it's going to be into a new world that hopefully could be a lot better. Um, There are a lot of things that are sort of bubbling to the surface right now that if addressed might give reason for optimism. So it's a dark period right now, but I'm really hopeful that when this is all over, it's going to be a better time. In terms of when that's going to happen, when are we not going to have to be socially distancing anymore? When are we going to be able to be in our offices doing our normal thing? I mean, I can say with pretty good certainty that in five years, everything's going to be pretty normal, but I don't know how long it's going to take to get to there. Five years is my safe answer. One year, I think, is too optimistic. Two years feels maybe a little pessimistic, but I don't promise anything. So, um, you know, people are working on a vaccine, but the fastest vaccine ever in history was the mumps. And that took four years. Um, and people are working as fast as they can, but, uh, they, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's not a sure thing by any stretch. And there are some things like HIV for which there still is no vaccine. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Boy, there's so much we've gone through in the medical history of our, just uh, the time that we have been living. Um, yeah. So uh, I know people have been asking you this too. Um, uh, where can I get my car serviced? How, where can I get, can, will I be able to go get my glasses done? Now I will tell you a friend of mine who's been on the uh-huh. show, Gary Sarantopoulos has this optical shop, modern optical. And he said to me, Oh, you got them there. Aren't oh yeah. That's why they look so good. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you do look good. I'll put mine on in a minute. But um, he said to me in, in one of their locations, he's going to do by appointment only. So, uh-huh. I mean, those are those are those kind of changes that happen, right? Um, yeah. And and people like just something about someone said the other day, I got to go get my winter tires taken off my car. I'm looking to own mm-hmm. a car. Well, you know, I'm afraid about that. So, you know, there's a hesitation where it used to be a natural thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are, there are risks everywhere, and, and a lot of it's unknown. I mean, so how what are the risks of somebody servicing your car, sitting in your car while they service it, getting out of your car, they clean it, and then you get in the car, and are there virus particles sitting there, and mm. how many? And how many does it even take to get you sick? We don't even know that yet. So there's reason for fear, and the safest thing to do is stay in your house and never leave. But after a certain period of time, after that first month or month and a half or whatever it was, we all started to snap, and we started to realize that the risks – of going out and maybe getting your car service or maybe, you know, 
walking through the park with a friend and staying two meters apart the whole time, but at least having a walk together in a conversation. These are the kinds of things that we just we're, we're pushing ourselves back into. And so it's, it's a case by case basis where it really helps to have an understanding of what the big picture is. And the big picture is mm -hmm. this doesn't seem to spread very much on surfaces. That doesn't seem to be where you're getting these big outbreaks. It really seems to be spending time in close proximity with people and talking. And so like there's this uh, really informative paper that came out of China where there was an outbreak in an office building. And in that office building, uh, the outbreak occurred and there were, I think, 97 cases, but 95 of those were on the same floor in the same office. And the majority of that was on the same side of the office. It was a call center where people sat at their desks and talked on the phone. Mm. And so other people that took the elevator with people who were infected or other people who were using the same door to get into the building did not get infected, uh, at least not at the same rates. There were a couple of cases on a different floor, but very, very few. And so when you have that sort of thing in mind, you can start to come up with your own answers about, okay, if I get my car serviced, I'm probably the surface isn't the really the big thing to worry about. So it's let's be very careful talking to technicians. Let's be very careful keeping my distance. And then if I'm, you know, when I'm touching surfaces, I'm going to get in my car. They're going to clean it. I'm going to get in my car. I'm going to drive it home with the windows down. So I get as much air circulation as possible. When I get home, I'm going to leave the doors open for a while. I'm going to let the car keep sort of venting. I'm going to spray it with, uh, with sanitizer and, and clean it as much as I can. And then I'm going to go back to my life. You know, because you can only do so much. No. I was saying to the Chum Morning Show the other day, I think I have to go take my car for a walk because I haven't driven it for a while. You have to keep the car <laughs> yeah. moving. Like, I, it's like, like I'm looking at the car going, hello, when's the last time you've been driven? You got to keep it moving. That's a technician <laughs> call me saying, you got to keep that car moving. Um, yeah. In 2014, you, re you released this best-selling book called Mother Nature is Trying to Kill You, a lively tour through the dark side of the natural world. Now, with this research that you did, um, it, did it help you understand as a scientist and as an author to understand this pandemic a little bit more? You know what? I think it did. And so when I was putting that book together, I was looking for a way to approach uh, just some basic ideas in biology that I really find exciting and fun and sexy. And like the fact that there's weird sex in nature and there's disgusting murder in nature and there's horrible venoms in nature. And I really like that stuff. It makes me giggle. It makes me scared. It makes me get adrenaline. And that's the stuff I like reading about. And so when I put the book together, I sort of, I, I sort of, the, 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 um, the thesis message was nature can be dark and disgusting and horrible. But if you look away from that, you're missing out on some of the most beautiful parts of nature because a scorpion sting is not just a, a, a thing that that's that venom that's in a scorpion's tail has specific molecular properties that do incredible physiological things to the thing that it stings. And it's there for a reason. It helps it survive. It helps it kill its prey. It helps it protect itself against predators. Um, and it's a big part of the story. And so if you're always trying to tell nature as this rosy bed of flowers, you miss out on the scorpion. And I love the scorpion. Yeah. So with that in mind, you know, COVID-19 is a terrible, awful disease that's making people very sick, that's killing people, and is very scary. But there is something about how viruses appear out of nowhere and are so successful that you have to respect and you have to admire. Mm. And so to look at it as, a, as a, a phenomenon, a part of nature, just like a rainbow is part of nature, it's got a dark side to it for sure, but it's really part of the, the beauty of what nature can mm. do and part of why we should respect nature. I like that. And you think that science is sexy and I like that too. I always like that about you. Um, <laughs> uh, in, in the country right now, we're, we're broadcasting from Canada, but of course this podcast is all over the world. 
Um, mm-hmm. And we talked about end in sight. You know, we we're talking about one, two could be, you know, reaching a five could be, eh, we don't know. No one really knows. And I know that you say that, but uh, um, there's no such thing, which I think is a really important part of your nose is it being wiped out. Is that mm. what you tell us about that? Yeah. So, I mean, what epidemiologists are saying right now is there's no scenario where we just go right back to where we were before, because uh, in, you know, take the best case scenario that a vaccine is made available. So that vaccine, in order to be totally effective, has to go everywhere and work on everyone. And we haven't been able to do that with anything except smallpox. And that took a long time. So if we manage to, you know, vaccinate the majority of the population in Canada to the point that the virus isn't spreading here anymore, it's still sitting in wait, right? It still could get here from an airplane that comes from some other part of the world. Uh, as long as anybody has it, we're all sort of threatened. And every kid that's born uh, without any kind of immunity is threatened. And, you know, we don't know how effective a vaccine is going to be. So we don't, uh, I think, looking for a solution that's going to end this, and just put us back where we were before, I don't think is realistic. If you look at the Spanish flu, it stuck around for a long time until we basically oh, yeah. had herd immunity. But there are strains of that that still persist. I mean, part some of the flus that are around today are descendants of that Spanish flu. So the severity went down wow. a lot. Wow. There's still flus around, right? And so COVID-19 yeah. is probably just part of the human experience now. So let's talk about what herd immunity is. And that's so interesting you bring up the Spanish flu because they say 60% of us, according to your notes, are immune to this. Are we? Is that what the numbers well, are? Right. So the numbers are that you to have herd immunity, you need 60% of people to be immune to the virus, at least. It could be between ah. 60 and 80%. It depends on how much the, it spreads. So if you don't come up with a vaccine, then you would want 60% to 80% of people to have had the disease or exposure to the disease and thus no longer be able to get sick with it, which is a bit of an assumption, but it's so far from what we know, it's it seems that if you've had it, you're not gonna get it again, at least not in the short term. Um, and so if you have those numbers, then it can't spread anymore. But the problem is that none of the cities that have had the terrible outbreaks are anywhere close mm-hmm. to that. I mean, New York City has maybe, they've, you know, they've done antibody tests, maybe 20% of the people have had that disease and it's been a nightmare nightmare there and so what we're saying is you need to be three times that bad before you enjoy any kind of herd immunity so some people have said quit flattening the curve quit with the economic hardships let's just open things up and let this virus run its course we're going to lose probably the same number of people anyway and you know let's get back to living our lives and i really disagree with that philosophy because the, the main thing we're seeing is that if you don't flatten the curve, if you let the virus get the upper hand and you let the number of cases get very large, the medical infrastructure can't help people. So people that could have survived if the hospitals were working can't survive because there just aren't enough doctors, beds, masks, whatever the case may be. And so that's why you see the death rate being very different in places like Canada like a paper just came out showing that in British Columbia, if you go to the hospital with COVID-19, you are far more likely to survive than somebody who's admitted to the hospital in the United States or who was admitted in Italy during their, you know, their really bad period there. When the hospitals are overwhelmed, the, the survival rate goes down. And so that's why it's better to flatten the curve, even if it takes longer. And I know it's economically difficult. I know people have lost jobs. I know this is really terrible for a lot of people, but the loss of life, I think, is is worth uh, balancing against that. I do too, I do too. And with the Spanish flu then, how long, somebody said to me the other day, 
well, that was a long time ago, the Spanish flu. Look at all the technology we have. Look at all the accessibility we have to good medicine. I'll tell you what we have right now is a roll of the dice. Pure luck. Spanish flu was hardest on people in their 20s. There is no reason that this had to be hardest on people in in older age brackets. And there's no we're yeah. pure luck that it doesn't kill kids on t- contact. And it's pure yeah. luck that the death rate for COVID-19 is less than 1%. That is luck. If you look at MERS, another coronavirus, the death rate is 10%. So we're just lucky. And the thing is that that disease, COVID-19, is called COVID-19 because we found out about it in 2019, it came from wild animals and wild animals are full of viruses that could spread to humans anytime. And so we need to learn more because there's no reason we might not have a COVID 30, COVID 25, mm. a COVID, mm-hmm. you know, 20. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, now let me ask you this with all that's happening, the Victoria uh, long weekend, uh, mm. the Memorial weekend down in the States protesting mm. uh, that wave could that everyone's kind of shooting for it. Well, September in the fall, when you have the regular flu, that's when they were expecting, I'm, you know, everyone, I, every day I look at the news and it's, we're expecting it then, but that's when they were expecting that second wave. You say, no matter what, there will be a second wave. Yeah. That's what the epidemiologists keep saying is that a second wave is sort of the pattern that you, you can't get away from with these things. And so whether it comes very soon because of the protests that are happening and so many people being in close quarters and it should be said, those people know those risks, right? They are protesting despite those risks and it just underlies just how serious they are. It's not because they're uninformed. Um, the, uh, the second wave phenomenon happens because we lock down when it first comes and then we start opening things up and by necessity, we take more risks. And there may be a weather part of this. It may be that the coronavirus is a little bit stronger in the cold months than it is in the summer months. And there's a bit of data from Australia that support that hypothesis, but we don't really know yet. Um, but So it might be a seasonal thing, but in, in terms of just how these things progress, it comes in waves. We sort of hey. batten down the hatches, it disappears for a while, and then it comes back. And then it goes away for a while, and then it comes back. But with every wave, more people get infected. So the number of people that are available to the virus as hosts goes down. And so the spread becomes a little bit weaker, and the virus becomes a little less virulent each time. So it's this, it's this roller coaster that we're on now, and we don't exactly know where the bumps are, but we know it goes up and down. Okay. Now, do you have an excess card? Yeah. Okay. Do you have a passport? Yeah. So we're going to have now maybe immunity passports as well. Right. Good question. So immunity passports are this idea that um, if I've had the virus or gotten a vaccine, but let's just for now, because we don't have a vaccine, let's say I've had the virus and I've been tested and I still have had the virus and I got better. We think that if that's true, I can't get it again. Now, if I can't get it again, I am not as risky a person to bring into your country or to work in your supermarket or to drive your taxi. There are all kinds of jobs that it would be great for people who are immune to be doing. And so some people have said we should have immunity passports. The problem with that, there are a whole bunch of problems with that. But the big basic one is the virus hasn't been around long enough for us to know how long you're immune after you get sick. Because some coronaviruses, you can get sick again with the same one six months later. Other ones, mm. you you know, other viruses, you once you get it, you don't get it again. We're hoping that once you get coronavirus, you know, this this COVID nineteen, you don't get sick again ever. But it's only been around since December, so we we know we don't have the long term data. That's the big problem. And then the other problem is that if you think about uh, somebody who's really desperate for work, uh, 
what if they knew that if they had this immunity passport, they would be able to get certain jobs that they can't get right now, you know, in a mm-hmm. tough economy. So are they going to go infect themselves on purpose? We don't want to create perverse incentives like that uh, because economically uh, yeah. that is bad for a whole bunch of reasons. Yeah. I often think of with, with uh, you know, when things do open up, whatever phase that we're in, in the United States, they use colors. We use one, two, three. I have sisters who live down in the States. And I, 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 I think to myself, let's just say that you go, you're, you're clear, the borders open up at this time, this, when we're talking, it is not. Um, wherever you go, do you have to come back to your hometown and do you have to stay on lockdown for 14 days before reentering? Is that part of, hey, I'm taking some time off, I am going somewhere. And by the way, Dan, you're my boss, I'm going to let you know where I am, mm-hmm. what I'm doing, uh, whether or not I, I post it or not. And then I have to be accountable. So when the boss says to you on the weekend, say, what's up for the weekend? They really want to know what's up for the weekend. Right? Right. Yeah, sure. Can the boss tell you you can't go away for the weekend? I mean, right right now, if, uh, if, if somebody, who knows, if the border were to open right away, and we know it's it's closed right now, but if the border opened and yeah. somebody ran an errand in the States, went across the border to buy gas, <laughs> and then came back, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, the rule is they'd have to lock down for 14 days. And But one reality is all of us have shown that we can work from our homes right now. So maybe workplaces will have to accommodate that. Maybe it'll be part of the, the contract that um, if you go away, uh, you know, we understand that we will let you work from home, but you're only allowed to go away a certain number of times a year or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, my dad lives in the British West Indies on an island called Anguilla, and they don't have the great health care there that they have in Canada. And so he's got a condition with his eyes that requires him to see an eye doctor about every three months or so. And so he's been missing out on these eye appointments. And so right now he's in exactly that spot where he's trying to figure out how do I go to Canada see the doctor and go back home. But it looks like, you know, he's got to go through St. Martin to get here. And so is there a quarantine period in St. Martin? And then you go to Canada and then there's 14 days. And then you see the doctor, then you fly back to St. Martin and do 14 days. I mean, it could be that that it's just, uh, it's almost impossible. And so he's really, he's trying to figure this out because his, his eyesight may depend on it. And so um, yeah, there are a yeah. lot of questions we just don't know the answers to yet. And people have to be thinking as hard as they can. We don't know the future. We don't know the future. We do know that people are working towards opening up. Um, mm. I just saw a movie the other night. And they go, oh, look, there's a restaurant. <laughs> Remember that? Remember that guy coming over and taking the order? Remember that? Yeah. He'd share a plate, you know? Yeah, I so cool. Yeah, our, sit near other a, people. Yeah. You had to talk. Maybe if the music was too loud, but it doesn't matter. Or uh, go get your hair done, color, blow dry. Thank you very much. Nice to see you. Uh, I'll give an example of that. You know, uh, Germany started this thing where they, and I know you probably know about this, we're going to put a plexiglass. We're going to remove every other chair depending on the square footage of the of the salon. But one of the things they said was we are not going to give uh, anyone a blowout because that sends mm. the particles all over the place. Interesting. interesting. How that is we have to think about those things. Yeah. Um, restaurants um, removing some seats. Uh, you know, if your capacity is 32, it gets reduced to 16. How do these people make money? Uh, it is really, they said one in Toronto, one out of every two restaurants will close. Those are very sad statistics. So sad. Wow. And at the same time, I know to tiptoe back, and you being the scientist that you are, we have to, if we're expected to uh, you know, get back into the flow of what we had before, which is going to look quite different, those changes have to be made, and you have to be patient with those changes. 
It's so hard. I mean, and the thing is that we don't know everything. Our, I mean, even the scientists change what they say depending on the new information they get. So if you, I mean, I've been following this very closely since it was an obscure story. I was, you know, I was, uh, I remember saying like, oh, there's this weird cold that people have, this weird pneumonia in China. Is anybody wow. interested in talking about that? And, and, uh, and now it's, it's everywhere, obviously. So, yeah. uh, you yeah. know, early on they were saying, don't worry about asymptomatic spread. And now we know asymptomatic spread is the majority of how this spreads around. It's about 30% tell, tell of people. people Tell people what asymptomatic means, just in case they don't. Yeah, know. it's about a third of people who get the virus never show symptoms, but they spread it. And it's not like they have a weak strain of it. They, The one they have can kill another person. It's just they're lucky. And we don't know why there are those differences among people. Uh, we know that it's a little bit correlated with age, but some people have no idea they're sick at all and are spreading it like crazy. And other people, mm -hmm. uh, they spread it like crazy, and then they start to feel sick, and they find out for the last three days they've been giving it to everybody they're close to. And we thought early on that that wasn't the case. And so the advice was don't worry about it if you don't have symptoms. And now the advice is very different. You have to imagine that everyone is sick, even if they look totally fine. And and mm -hmm. uh, and that's what's made it so tricky. And I think for some people, that's made it feel like scientists are changing their story and shouldn't be trusted. You know, why can't they know all the mm. facts? Um, but, and this, but this is really giving a lot of people a real up-close look at how science works, where scientists are not married to what they say. They are married to what the, new, the latest data tell them. And so it doesn't matter if I've gone on the news and said, you don't have to worry about asymptomatic spread. That's not a problem. And then a week later, I say, I was wrong. Asymptomatic spread, it turns out, we now know is a problem. Um, mm -hmm. those, the people who change their stories... Those are often the ones you should be trusting, especially when it comes to science. People that say, I know a drug that's going to fix this and you don't have to worry. And then just really lock down on that drug and say, like, I just know in my gut that that's going to work. And then wait for any kind of data that support what they say and say, see, I told you that drug was going to work. Those are not the people to listen to. And one of them is the president of the United States, but I won't say any names. And, the, you know, that's not how you move forward. What you have to do is listen right. to scientists, even if they are changing their story based on the latest data. Yeah. But even though we're not political, I'd like to say, I don't even know where he stands on things, is uh, uh, Governor Cuomo. He said, we're sticking to the science. We're sticking to the science. I thought, that's a good, clear message. And it, he it's said, it is going to change every day. And this is what's happening. And one day it was okay news. One day it was not very good news. Uh, so when this all started, you know, being that I'm going into my 62nd year of living, um, they were going, people over 60, and went, I mean, that statistic, I never, you know, Okay, I made it. Mm -hmm. I, I made You're it. Welcome. I made it. Welcome, uh, yeah, welcome. yeah, and I'm 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 a grandmother, you know, and I have to be concerned right about that. But uh, I remember when masks weren't the thing, and now masks are the thing. Now people, bless their hearts, people are making masks or saying, "Oh, the N95." No, it, that's not the necessary anymore. That's saved for the people that really need it, the frontline workers, especially those in the hospital. That was made very clearly. And the community coming together, I can sew, I can make this happen. So we mm -hmm. know that. Masks are important, but not just one mask, Dan Riskin. You're mm. breathing into that same thing all the time. So let's can we talk quickly about cloth masks and what you're suggesting that we do? Because there are disposable sure. so, ones, but I'm talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. N95 masks are made to protect a doctor or a nurse or somebody who's working in a hospital who's surrounded by airborne particles and is trying not to breathe them in. And so all the particles go through this filter and come in. And they really only work if they've been fitted to your face. And if you are wearing it properly and you use it once and you wear it for the right amount of time and you, you know, there are a whole bunch of ifs. And so they don't really work for people going to the grocery store because a lot of the things that need to happen with an N95 mask to work don't, don't work. And what we've found is or what scientists have 
have found is that masks in general for the public, whether they're N95 or cloth masks or homemade masks or whatever, don't really stop you from getting the disease yourself. They don't really change the numbers very much. You still are most likely to get this by being too close to somebody who's talking and breathing in the particles or touching a surface, shaking hands, and then touching your face to adjust your mask perhaps. Um, and, and so it doesn't make a big difference that way. But what masks do is stop the asymptomatic carriers or pre-symptomatic carriers, people that don't know they have COVID-19 and are out and about from spreading it to the surfaces. So if I have COVID-19 and I go make a quick grocery trip and I wear a mask, I have germs coming out of my face constantly, but the vast majority are stopping at the mask and not getting onto the bananas and not getting onto the cartons that I'm nearby and all that stuff. And then the next person behind me is less likely to get it. So the masks are for everybody to wear in case any of them happen. And that, and so when you see somebody wearing a mask, you talk about the goodwill that people have building masks and making masks and all that stuff. Every time I see somebody with a mask, I have this little thought, like they're doing that for me. They're not doing it because they're scared of me. They're doing it as out of courtesy to protect me in case they are sick. Mm. And so it's an act of kindness and it's a very nice thing to do to wear a mask. And I think that when you can sort of see it through that lens and you see all these masks at the grocery store or wherever you're running errands, um, you know, it it gives you a different feeling than the sort of xenophobic one you would have otherwise if you thought they were all scared of you wearing a mask to protect themselves. Possibility of dogs. Uh, detecting COVID-19. That's exciting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this I, I'm always looking for the neat little story and maybe the ray of hope. People are in the UK and in Pennsylvania and possibly in other places, although those are the only two I've heard about, they're training dogs on the smell of COVID-19. So dogs can smell really obscure things on their owner's breath. And uh, so, for example, there are dogs that sniff for tuberculosis. And so you can walk the dog past a bunch of people. And if one of them is infected with tuberculosis, their breath smells different because it's an infection of the lungs. And the dogs can smell that. Dogs can detect cancer, Parkinson's disease, a whole bunch of different stuff. And so why not COVID-19? It might work. It might change your breath in a way that we don't know. So they're trying it out. They're trying to see if dogs could sniff because if you have a, a COVID sniffing dog at the airport, that's going to be a lot mm-hmm. more effective presumably than a sure. thermometer because we know a lot of people don't get a fever when they have COVID-19, uh, especially people who are asymptomatic, but maybe their breath changes when they're spilling out yeah. those virus particles. So if a dog could pick and, that up, that'd be great. You know. And then what they're doing now is they're in certain uh, cases as we roll back in, uh, doctor's offices are taking, you know, temperatures are doing that thing against the forehead. There's, you know, you're 35.6, you're good to go. It's just yeah. another precaution. I think that the, the medical community has to do contact, contact tracing right. uh, is something that we're going to have to put on our phones. Can you briefly talk about what that all means as it's being developed? So the idea is that uh, if you have a disease where everybody doesn't spread until after they get sick, it's kind of mm-hmm. a little bit easier to prevent the spread because if I suddenly get sick, you just keep me away from people. And if I get close to somebody, you test them. And I should know who I, you know, I'll remember who I was close to after I felt sick. But if you tell me, oh, Dan, you have COVID-19, who have you been close to in the last four days? Well, I don't know. Uh, I went to Home Depot and got a ladder. Uh, so whoever was working there and whoever was in, like, good luck. You'll never figure it out. So the solution, that they're putting forward is a technological one where I have on my phone uh, something that right now is an app, but it's going to be built into system software. And it keeps track of whose phones I come close to so that if I suddenly get sick, I push a button and all those people get notified. But of course, 
The challenge is how do you do that and maintain privacy and security, especially when you're in the middle of, you know, all these riots in the States where there are all right. kinds of authority figures that would love to be able to track people. I, you uh -huh. know, there's a huge disincentive to do something like this if you think it's going to endanger your privacy. But what I can tell you about the, the, the contact tracing apps that have been proposed by Apple and by, the, uh, by Google, by Android, yeah. that are going to be on the majority of phones, they've got some very smart uh, systems in place that would protect your privacy. So your phone is sending out a random number that can't be traced to you. And when you get sick, you tell the server your list of random numbers, and then all those random numbers get sent to everyone. And on their individual devices, they compare to see whether they've come in contact with your phone or not. Wow. And the server never, so yeah. you, the server never finds out who was with whom. The server never knows where anybody was. The server doesn't even know who anybody is. And so, and it's all voluntary. And I think it's a smart algorithm that I hope gets adopted widely because it would be great for me to have this on my phone so I could just get an alert that says, hey, Dan, three days ago, you were close to somebody that has COVID-19. Just know that. You might want to get tested. You might want to take extra precautions, just so you know. And, um, and I think that would be a great way forward. And it's a great place where technology might be helping us to live this better future. Better future. What are you looking most forward to, Dan, when in one, two, or five years? You know what? I, I think what I'm looking forward to is the new conversation about the role of experts. I think that going into this, you know, there was this huge anti-vaccine movement, which I understand still has a lot of momentum, but I hope this shifts the needle on that. And there's also been a real push against experts especially uh, on the right. There's been a lot of, you know, distrust of experts, but as this has happened, Everybody's been turning to the experts and the scientists and saying, you know, what do we do? How dangerous is this? Where did it come from? And scientists have been doing their best to give answers. Scientists have been trying to come up with solutions and they've had our back. And so I hope that that goodwill continues. But the other thing is like, it's broken down the fourth wall a little bit. Scientists are talking to us from their houses. And so you can see Lego on the floor behind them. And Yay. kids are coming into the room when they're in the middle of an interview. And you're reminded, hey, scientists are just people who are scared of COVID-19 like the rest of us, right? They yeah. have kids. Yeah. And so the person that's making a vaccine isn't some weird white lab coat monster from an 80s movie. It's a person who wants their kids to live. And they made a vaccine because they want their kids to live. They're, it's a mom. And so I think when people are seeing that, that we're all doing this from our houses, I think it's changing the perception of science. And I hope mm -hmm. that as we emerge from this, or even as we emerge from it, as soon as possible, I hope that this builds trust for scientists and a goodwill for scientists, and that that translates into political power for scientifically sound uh, policies. And that more people will get into science. No, that too. Yeah, lots of kids. That, Love that. too. That too. Dan Riskin, so good to talk to you. Where can people follow you? Uh, I'm at Riskin Dan on Twitter. That's the easiest one. Thank you, Dan Riskin. We'll see you soon. I know we'll have to have another update for sure. Thanks a lot, Marilyn. Marilyn Dennis does a podcast. New episodes every week. You can download or subscribe on the iHeartRadio app or wherever you get your podcasts.